Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. In 2018, the U.S. Soccer Federation named then-Columbus Crew head coach Greg Berhalter as the new and long-awaited manager of the U.S. men's national team. This was a controversial decision for many reasons. Greg, 45 years old at the time, had no international managerial experience. His resume consisted of a few seasons in Sweden, followed by five years at Columbus. And while his time at Columbus was relatively successful, Greg had never won MLS Cup. Fans were also disillusioned by the hiring process in which it seemed like few other candidates were considered. And probably the biggest point of contention was Greg's relationship with then U.S. soccer executive Jay Berhalter. It's also worth mentioning that hanging over all of this was the enormously dark cloud of the USMNT's failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. U.S. soccer needed hope, they needed to win back the fan base, and above all, they needed to qualify for the 2022 World Cup. Tensions were high, and the underwhelming hire of the executive's brother did nothing to quell those tensions. Greg would face an uphill battle in his quest to change the way the world views American soccer. The early returns were not great. Greg, an admitted soccer idealist when it comes to how the game should be played, seemed to value style over substance. And his insistence on forcing square pegs into round holes saw some pretty painful results. But eventually, things came around. The U.S. men's national team would go on to win the 2021 Nations League, the 2021 Gold Cup, and eventually qualify for the 2022 World Cup. Still, there's uneasiness when it comes to Burhalter. Fans wonder if the recent success of the team is happening because of Greg or in spite of Greg. And there's a lot of confusion about what tactical impact Greg is actually having on the squad. Today, we're going to take a look at Greg's tenure as head coach of the USMNT. We'll track the evolution of his tactics and player selection in an attempt to get a sense of how he's grown as a manager. We will break down Greg's tactical evolution to three distinct phases and explain how one led to the next, and finally evaluate his performance thus far as head coach of the USMNT. All that and more on this episode of The Yank Report. What's up? My name is Sam. This is The Yank Report, a show where we talk about all things American soccer. If you're into that, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and hey, turn on those notifications if you don't mind. Before we jump in, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first-to-market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all of your sports information from live in-game betting props and futures head to bet online today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet use our promo code believe 50 to receive 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts when greg berhalter took over the national team in late 2018 he inherited a player pool that was largely depleted john brooks michael bradley christian Polisic, and josie altador represented the spine of the team Tyler Adams would soon be transferring from New York Red Bulls to RB Leipzig, and Weston McKinney was just barely beginning to break into Schalke. Greg's first tactical phase with the national team was to take his style of play from the Columbus crew and implement it with the USMNT, or maybe more appropriately, attempt to implement it with the USMNT. He described his style of play as using the ball to disorganize the opponent to create goal-scoring opportunities. In a video on the MLS YouTube channel from 2018, Greg showed off some of the main tenets of his philosophy. Fullbacks that push high up the flanks, 
a deep line playmaker that drops from the midfield to between the center backs to hit long diagonals, and a playmaking number 10 that drifts around the field to create overloads. The goal was to stretch the defense horizontally and use that disorganization to attack vertically. On defense, Greg opted for what he described as a 4-4-2 mid-block, attempting to control the opposition with a shape that was hard to break down and force the opposition into wide areas. In the first Behind the Crest video with Greg Berhalter as head coach, Greg addressed the team by holding a ball in the air and saying, it's about making the opposition run. Every pass we make, we're going to wear them down. We're going to make pass after pass, and we're going to play between their lines and behind their lines. It was pretty clear from the beginning that Greg was looking to play possession soccer. Greg's first phase as national team coach is defined by two results, both against Mexico, both losses. The first was the 2019 Gold Cup Final. In the lineup for this game, you can see the archetype for Greg's tactics. A deep-lying playmaker in Michael Bradley, a floating 10 in Christian Pulisic, and a hold-up striker up top in Josie Altidore. Both John Brooks and Tyler Adams were out this game due to injury. Having important players out of the lineup due to injury would become a reoccurring theme in the Burhalter era. The USMNT was able to create chances against Mexico, but failed to put them away. Defensively, the U.S. struggled to control the midfield, with an older Michael Bradley lacking the legs and a young Weston McKinney lacking the discipline. Eventually, a Mexico counterattack right up the middle would find the game's only goal. A few months later, the U.S. would once again face Mexico in a September friendly. Tyler Adams, John Brooks, Michael Bradley, and Josie Altidore were all absent from the squad. This match will forever be remembered as the build-from-the-back game. The U.S. refused to play long, choosing instead to build from the back against all odds. As the game went on, this tactic became abundantly clear to Mexico, and Mexico's press smelled blood in the water. El Tri would go on to thrash the USMNT 3 to nothing. The first phase of Burhalter's USMNT coaching career was defined by Greg's ideological commitment to system over everything. In a 2019 interview with Alexi Lalas of Fox Sports, Greg discussed the difficulties of being a national team manager versus a club manager, the lack of time with the team to implement ideas, and the dangers of overloading players with too much information. The writing was on the wall. The system did not work, and things would need to change. In 2020, COVID would come along and shut down the world. When play finally did resume for the USMNT, we found a national team with many fresh faces and many fresh ideas. With that, we entered into the next tactical phase of Greg Berhalter's USMNT tenure. Phase 2, Experimentation. The second phase of the Berhalter era would be defined by experimentation, experimenting with both tactics and players. The US returned to action with friendlies against Wales and Panama. Notable absences from the roster would include Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore. These two veteran players would not be seen again for the USMNT under Burhalter. Christian Pulisic would also miss the camp due to injury. Instead, Greg would bring in a whole host of new players. Yunus Musa, Gio Reyna, Conrad De La Fuente, Chris Richards, Sebastian Soto, Nico Giacchini, and Johnny Cardoso would all make their debuts for the USMNT. In the first game against Wales, the U.S. men's national team got their first glimpse of the MMA midfield. It would also be the highly anticipated debut for Gio Reyna. Tactically, there were some holdovers from the first era, with the U.S. attempting long diagonals from the back to the wings. While only a few months ago, the U.S. midfield of Pulisic, McKinney, and Bradley had gotten overrun by Mexico, the combination of Adams, McKinney, and Musa was dynamic, strong, and irresistible. The biggest change tactically was the press. While the 4-4-2 mid-block was still in use, 
the U.S. paired it with a 4-3-3 high press to absolutely smother Wales. In both the Wales and Panama games and the subsequent Switzerland friendlies against Jamaica, Northern Ireland, and Switzerland, it was clear that the U.S. had found a weapon in the press. Still, there were some glaring issues. The U.S. were struggling to find goals. Greg experimented with a host of striker options including Josh Sargent, Sebastian Soto, Daryl DK, Jordan Peefock, Nico Jawakini, and even Sebastian Legette as a false nine, but no one was seizing the position. Defensively, the U.S. were getting absolutely shredded in transition. The implementation of high press left a ton of open field between the USMNT center backs and their goal. Defending that open field in transition was beginning to be a problem for Burhalter. This theme carried through the USMNT's Nation League semifinal game against Honduras, which required a late winner from Jordan Pifok to save the tournament. In the subsequent Nations League championship game against Mexico, Berhalter rolled out a three-man back line to mitigate the speedy Mexican attackers in transition. The tactic worked and the U.S. were Nations League champions, but the pragmatic approach was a far cry from the possession-style attractive soccer that Greg Berhalter discussed when taking the job as the U.S. men's national team head coach. The idealistic Berhalter was clearly unsatisfied. In 2021, the Gold Cup saw even more experimentation and a fresh crop of fresh faces for Burhalter to evaluate. Jean-Luc Abusio, Matthew Hoppe, and James Sands made their national team debuts in the Gold Cup. Tactically, Greg experimented with a three-man back line and a two-striker front line, though the most significant tactical wrinkle from Burhalter may have been the moving away from Jackson Ewell as the defensive midfielder. Ewell was the latest in a line of Burhalter's deep-lying playmakers tasked with hitting long diagonals to the wings. But like Bradley and Trapp before him, Ewell struggled with the defensive responsibilities of the role. Burhalter's move from Ewell to Kellen Acosta signaled a willingness to move away from a deep-lying playmaker role, a pillar of Greg's original system. Acosta went on to become one of the USMNT's top-performing players of the tournament. The second major development of the Gold Cup was the emergence of a lockdown defense for the USMNT. Centerback Miles Robinson was one of the best players in the tournament. Robinson partnered with Walker Zimmerman and formed an athletic and airily dominant centerback tandem for the US, capable of defending the vulnerable open field left behind in a high press. Behind them, Matt Turner posted multiple clean sheets and showed off some incredible saves, launching himself into the starting senior team keeper conversation. It was then time for the U.S. to head into World Cup qualifying. The team were riding high after winning two consecutive tournaments, but tactically, things were still very much unsettled. Through the Nations League and Gold Cup, Greg had experimented with a wide variety of players and tactics. On the one hand, this was necessary due to the state of the player pool at the time, but on the other, it led to a team that very much lacked cohesion going into the most important games of the cycle. In the opening window, the lack of cohesion was on full display. The team looked unprepared and disjointed. Few of the players had World Cup qualifying experience, and it showed. Few of the players had meaningful minutes playing together, and it showed. Tactically, the team appeared to be caught in two minds, attempting to be both aggressive in their pressing and presence, and patient in the buildup and possession, without any true creative outlet in the squad to unlock defenses, or a deep-lying playmaker to quickly change the point of the attack, the U.S. would get the ball in the opposition's half and slowly pass it around horizontally until they eventually settled for a cross, a shot from distance, or were dispossessed. Fans were critical of Greg's lineup selection and heavy rotation. 
It appeared Greg was attempting to mitigate some of the lack of experience by playing some older veterans who were not quite up to par with the rest of the squad. The opening window saw a stunning 0-0 draw away to El Salvador, a stunning 1-1 draw at home to Canada, and a whirlwind of a 4-1 comfort behind victory away to Honduras. The comfort behind win against Honduras was notable because it was the breakout game for 18-year-old star striker Ricardo Pepe and the last minutes of World Cup qualifying for both John Brooks and Josh Sargent, two players many thought would have big roles for the team in the cycle. The failure of the first window proved that the U.S. would not be able to sleepwalk their way through World Cup qualifying. The time for experimentation was over. The U.S. would need answers, and they would need them quickly. And with that, we entered into the third phase of the evolution of the tactics of Greg Berhalter. Verticality. When the U.S. returned for the second window of World Cup qualifying, a new word was dominating every player interview and press conference. Verticality. It quickly became a punchline among the fan base, but it signaled the end of the early Burhalter system, which favored patience in both possession and defending, and ushered in a new era of aggressive action. The U.S. were going to press, and when they won the ball back, they were going to run directly at the opposition. The first game of the second window against Jamaica would be our first glimpse of the tactics and the players that would define the verticality era. It was the first time we saw the MMA midfield in World Cup qualifying. It was also the first time we saw this center back pairing of Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson. The combination of the strong and relentless MMA midfield with center backs capable of covering depth meant that the U.S. could press without fear of getting exposed in transition. The U.S. would cruise to a 2-0 victory over Jamaica, but the team was certainly not out of the woods yet. In the second match of the second window, the U.S. would head to Panama, a game which will live in infamy. Berhalter put out a heavily rotated U.S. side that struggled to do much of anything in the game. The 1-0 loss away to Panama served as the lowest point in the Berhalter era, with many critics calling for his firing. The game would also serve as a red wedding of sorts for the USMNT, it was the last meaningful World Cup qualifying minutes for Sebastian Legette, Christian Roldan, Mark McKenzie, and George Bellow. From here on out, we would not see drastic rotations from Burhalter in World Cup qualifying. Instead, players like Adams, Miles, and Jedi were leaned upon to play significant minutes. The player pool shrank dramatically after that. Tactically, recognizable and repeatable patterns from Burhalter's verticality system began to emerge. Instead of the slow and deliberate buildups of the early days, the squad looked to move from defense to attack with direct and penetrating runs from players like Eunice Musa, Weston McKinney, and Serginho Dest. In possession, the team found a 2-3-5 shape with fullbacks pushed high into the attack and wingers who tucked into the half spaces. Defensively, we saw a 4-3-3 high press that started with the striker and was anchored by athletic center backs. The true validation for the verticality system came in the USMNT's November World Cup qualifier matchup against Mexico. A game in which Mexico's aging and slower midfield was overwhelmed by the speed, athleticism, and quality of the U.S. side. The U.S.'s decisive dos Acero victory over Mexico remains one of the best performances I've ever seen from a USMNT. After defeating Mexico, the U.S. would go on to secure qualifying for the World Cup. While there were some highs and lows, perhaps most notably a 2-0 away loss to Canada and a 0-0 draw away to Mexico, tactically speaking, the U.S. remained consistent building on their patterns and giving the core team more minutes together. Wrinkles came here and there. The emergence of Luca De La Torre gave the midfield a more creative option. 
the arrival of Jesus Ferreira gave the attack a striker who could drop in to combine or get in behind the launch attacks. As the group began to gel, the comfort level increased and we began to see more possession and more intricate passing sequences. The next big changes would come following World Cup qualification in the summer friendlies against Morocco and Uruguay. Against Morocco, we saw a 3-2-5 possession shape, which Reggie Cannon drifted between a right back in defense and a right center back in possession, giving Tyler Adams a partner to aid in the buildup. Against Uruguay, Berhalter inverted the midfield pyramid, allowing Weston McKinney to function as more of a 10. With these tweaks, we saw the USMNT much more comfortable with attacking through the middle, something they struggled to do during qualifying. Now, the verticality system isn't perfect or groundbreaking. But it does allow the team to play to its strengths, and it has been consistently effective at creating quality chances against quality opponents. It also represents a massive change from the original possession style system that Greg Berhalter attempted to implement when he first became U.S. Men's National Team head coach. Remember the speech he gave in 2019 about wearing down the opposition with pass after pass, playing between their lines and behind their lines? We'll contrast that with how Greg describes the team's strength During a 2022 interview with Football Americas, he said, We press. We press relentlessly. We don't stop pressing. It just breaks the team's rhythms. They will get some chances against us if they break the press, but it's not easy. That makes the game difficult. In 2019, the system was all about what players can do with the ball. In 2022, the system is all about what they can do off of it. If you wonder about how any player is being evaluated on the national team, the first place you should start is how they fit into the press. Now, with all that being said, I think it's time to draw some conclusions. How do we rate Greg Berhalter's performance as the U.S. Men's National Team head coach? Let me first say that I think overall, we fans overrate a national team manager's impact on a national team, at least on the positive side. I think bad coaches can destroy a national team, but good coaches can only slightly help a national team. The disparity of talent between teams is too great, the margins for victory are too narrow, and the sample size is too small. For the U.S. Men's National Team, the manager at the helm for our greatest ever finish at a World Cup is the same manager at the helm for our failure to qualify. Ultimately, in my opinion at least, all a national team manager can do is implement a simple system, keep morale high, and hope for the best. And by that standard, I'd give Greg a D for Phase 1, a C for Phase 2, and a B-plus for Phase 3. Guys, I have no idea what went on with U.S. soccer behind the scenes during Greg's hiring, and at this point, I don't really need to relitigate the past. But I can tell you that Greg's original ambitious plan from 2019 to turn the USMNT into the Columbus crew was a failure. The system was too complicated, and it didn't play to the strengths of the players available. Greg's rigid commitment to the system in the face of that failure was frustrating to watch. However, to his credit, he did eventually recognize the need for change, and he did begin experimenting. It should also be said that some of the players Greg hoped to rely upon early in his tenure were either unavailable due to injury or saw some drastic declines in their performance much faster than we anticipated. The experimental era was both tremendously exciting and frustrating to watch as a fan. The lack of cohesion or identifiable tactical patterns was worrisome, though to be fair, some of that lack of cohesion was due in part to the injuries to core players and the struggles presented by COVID travel restrictions. The influx of new players meant that Greg basically had to reinvent the national team from scratch. He was presented with a difficult job in a difficult circumstance. Still, there are frustrating questions like, why did it take so long for Luca De La Torre to get an opportunity in the midfield? And why did it take so long for us to move on from some of the underperforming veterans? 
During the verticality era, there has been a lot to like. The team has been cohesive, there is a clear tactical plan that suits the players on the field, and by all accounts, the morale in the locker room is very good. The squad is playing, in my opinion, at least the best soccer we've ever seen from a U.S. men's national team, and with some important players out injured, things can potentially get better. Ultimately, though, Greg will be judged as a coach based on the squad's performance at the World Cup. That's it. Nothing more. A few games, a few bounces, and a few breaks here and there will largely determine his legacy. And while on the surface this may seem a bit unfair, it is exactly what he signed up for. The World Cup is that important. However, when I look back on Greg's tenure, I'll remember the controversy. But I'll also remember the ambitious and idealistic coach who was forced to change his ways. I'll remember the absolute whirlwind of attempting to build a national team during COVID and of course... I'll remember that magical night in November when the U.S. faced off against Mexico and played some of the best soccer I've ever seen from the USMNT. But what do you think about Greg Berhalter? Has your opinion of him changed during his tenure? Let me know what you think in the comments section. If you would like the Yank Report in podcast form, it is available everywhere that you get your podcasts. Si puede hablar español, déjame un comentario en español. Guys, thank you so much for watching. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button. If you really want to support the channel, you can become a member. You can get access to some cool badges and prizes, and you'll be supporting the channel and allowing me to make more content. Shout out to my tier two subscribers. Guys, thank you so much for watching. My name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.